Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the legal discussions that take place on this show are not intended to provide legal advice. If you have a legal situation that you require some help, please contact a lawyer and give them all the individual facts of your situation. Also, as always, the opinions that are voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or students. We are pleased today to welcome back a previous guest who has, since his last visit, triumphed in political combat, <laughs> the new state's attorney for Howard County, Rich Gibson. Welcome to the show, Rich. I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much. When last we spoke, uh, things were hanging in balance with your election with Deputy State's Attorney Kim Oldham, and the outcome was much more substantially in your favor than I think many people thought. I, I would agree. I, um, I thought it was going to be a close race, and I did all that I could to ensure that we would be victorious, and it, the community clearly responded, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be in this position. You were talking to me a little bit earlier about the evening of the election and kind of how you learned about your victory and that sort of thing. I wonder if you could regale our audience with yeah, sure. what you were up to prior to uh, the election. So the night of the election, it was raining. It was really like it was a pretty miserable day. I remember it was, rainy, it well. it was cold. And you have to get all of your signs up at the different polling sites before like the crack of dawn the next day. I think it's 8 a.m. or so the next morning. And... So as soon as the polling closed, I immediately started gathering my signs and I went about the county gathering signs for myself as well as other members of the team, like the courthouse team. Sure. So I'm picking up signs and I was getting calls from friends that were giving me data from each polling site. And so, you know, you heard you someone calls and says, Rich, you're, you're up five votes in, at this site. You're up, you know, 20 in this site. You're down 50 in this site and so on. And the problem with that is it's it's too small of a of a measure to give you a picture as to how you're doing overall, and so you really don't have any kind of scale. And so I said, look, stop calling me. I told all my friends, don't call me, don't text me. I just want to get through this evening, get all this, get all the signs, and get home. The Democrats were all celebrating at Kaler Hall, so everyone was going to Kaler Hall. My wife had already gone to Kaler Hall with uh, some of my friends and supporters, uh, most of my Democratic colleagues. Um, that were in battle with me or had, were already there. I was wet. I was tired. I was cold. And so I went home and took a hot shower. And as I was about to get in the shower, I received a message from a friend of mine who was a detective in Baltimore City. And he said, Rich, you won. Congratulations. And I looked at, I said, what are you talking about? He said, look at the data. And I looked at the, the data and I just looked at the screen quickly, and what it showed was the early voting results from early voting, which had come in, and I was up um, in early voting. And I, I said, oh, thanks, but that's actually not all the data. That's just early voting, and I hung up the phone, and I hopped in the shower. And my phone is blowing up, blowing up, blowing up, ringing, ringing, ringing off the hook, and I'm not answering it because I'm just taking a shower. I need to decompress, and, you know, I have no clue what the actual outcome is. I get out of the shower, and he's like, no, scroll over. And I scrolled over, and I saw... It wasn't just early voting, but it was actually, if you scrolled over, you could see the whole thing, and it was the, the results were already coming in. My wife calls me. She's like, get over to Kaler Hall right now. And so uh, I got dressed, um, went over to Kaler Hall, and I uh, was greeted warmly and enjoyed the rest of the evening. It, it's a great feeling to, you know, having run and lost and having run and won. 2014? 2014 right? versus 2018. I can tell you that winning feels uh, substantially better. Than, than losing, but um, running for office is a, is a great experience, period, either way. But 
winning definitely feels better. <laughs> is there anything that you did in 2018 that you didn't do in 2014 that you think helped? So, yes. When I ran in 2014, I ran what I would call cold, meaning I had my vision and my ideology and, and my skills that I wanted to bring to bear for the position. However, I did not have the networks in place. So I, I ran and the county, well, I've been established, you know, in, in different areas because I was working in Prince George's County before, working in Baltimore City before. I've been um, involved in the state bars. I've been involved in leadership before, but not necessarily county specific. Um, I also, I was a leader of the, well, I was the head of the minority bar, Warren Mitchell bar, like sure. Law Society for Howard County, but I had not, you know, the broader sense, I had not necessarily connected with the larger community of Howard County. And so when I was running in 2014, I was introducing myself and they didn't have a flavor for who I was. After I lost in 2014, as opposed to just waiting to 2018 and then deciding what I was going to do, whether I'm going to run again or not, um, I stayed involved. I got involved with... Um, the Columbia Democratic Club. I was on the board for that. I was on the board for, I was I made a member of the Central Committee, the Democratic Central Committee. I became a board member for Voices for Children in 2014, the tail end of 2014, which is a board that oversees foster kids in need of care in Howard County. And so I got more involved locally and I focused on, on developing my local connections so that I could have a broader base of knowledge of, hey, I know Rich, I've worked with Rich, he, this is someone who can deliver um, in a positive way. And so that was kind of what I, I used that I did not have in place in 2014. That I did have in place in 2018. And, you know, it, because I was operating in, across various different spectrums in Howard County, it just, it just benefited me greatly. So you clerked long ago for a judge <laughs> with whom I'm familiar, Herman Dawson, over in Prince George's County. Yes. I've had some interesting trials in front of Judge Dawson. Yes, I love Judge Dawson. You've also been in Baltimore City and mm -hmm. Baltimore County, correct? Baltimore City and Prince George's County. Oh, Prince George's County. Prince so George's County first. Um, I started under Glen Ivy in Prince George's, did district court there, was the head of the juvenile drug court, and then did summer circuit court. And then 06, I went to Baltimore City under Pat Jessamy, and I did um, non-fatal shootings, well, general trial, non-fatal shootings, homicide, major investigations, and then became team captain or leader in major investigations. I would presume that your experiences in other places are helpful in establishing what you're going to do going forward here in Howard County. Absolutely. Could you give us a little idea of in what way they invest what you're trying to accomplish here? Sure. I mean, in the end, crime is crime, right? And so, and, and the reason why we're called state's attorneys is because we enforce state laws. Sure. Right? There's probably, you know, maybe two, three percent local ordinances that we deal with. But the vast majority of what we do is mandated across the state. So the analysis, the ability to issue spot, uh, the presentation of ideas and concepts to a jury um, lend itself. I will say that Baltimore City, the jury pool is not aligned with the state's perspective. And so the ability to be effective in that environment it's kind of like a New York thing. If you can do it here, you can do it anywhere kind of I argument. Understand. Like if you can, if you can excel in an environment like Baltimore City where the jury has a, a distrust for law enforcement, a distrust for government, and you know, no real love for the prosecutor or uh, law enforcement. If you can exceed and, and excel in that environment, you can certainly excel in an environment where in Howard County, for instance, where they're more aligned with our perspectives. The community's more aligned with our perspectives. And so, so those skill sets have prepared me in that regard. Running an office is different. I will probably not try another case until 
a, about a year from now or so. Okay. Because I want to make sure that I have running the office under my belt. Um, but what I have seen in other jurisdictions is different strategies, some of which have been very, very effective and some of which which haven't. And I'll, I will tweak and modify those to apply in this space in Howard County. So you undoubtedly had some, and we discussed previously, some of the concerns of issues that were going to be necessary for you to address. Is there anything that has come up that has surprised you, something unanticipated that you've had to work around or work with? So Howard County is great in that I have been welcomed in by the organizations and institutions. And so there's a lot of partnerships that are, that are being formed, which are great. I'm working on developing a program with Howard County Schools that's going to help to address negative choices that kids are making. Sure. I had assessed and realized there was a need for that as it relates to opioids because um, synthetic opioids in particular are, are high, they're very potent. And so taking a single, a single exposure can, can equate to immediate addiction and in some cases death, right? And so it's not like, you know, you can smoke some marijuana. I'm not saying marijuana is good or bad, but you can smoke marijuana and it's not going to kill you. Right. Right. You can have a drink of alcohol. It's not going to kill you. We shouldn't do it. We should encourage our kids not to do it. But that adult choice that a child is making doesn't equate to a death sentence or immediately addicting behavior. Whereas with opioids, in particular synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil, we have that immediately addicting behavior. And so I, I realized it was that issue that I wanted to kind of publicize to kids, make smart choices. What I hadn't realized until I'd met with the schools, because I'm meeting with the schools to try to develop a program, I want to do it collaboratively, is they have issues with social media that we're going to kind of bake in and make part of our, our program. One thing I wasn't aware of is that kids are flashing a picture of themselves with a gun or a weapon saying, we're going we're gonna to shoot up the school tomorrow. And it could be just a prank. It could be a BB gun. It could be a real gun. But police have to assess this. They've got to stop the school. They've got to uh, notify parents. They've got to notify kids. That's a psychological impact on our students. Sure. And it has, it has a cost, a real-world cost to the school. And I didn't know that was going on. How pervasive is that? Apparently, it's happening far more regularly than, than I had known. It wasn't, sure, I wasn't sure. publicly aware of, the, of, of those kind of numbers. And so I'm going to work on addressing smart choices as it relates to social media, the consequences of terroristic threats, which is what that is. Sure. So there's criminal consequences. I mean, the reality is that, you know, in my day growing up, if you made a mistake, there wasn't, it wasn't permanently etched, right? Because of cell phones and, you know, the way they're, you know, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere now. Right. Kids are using them and they're using them to display adult behaviors. And then that impacts their ability to get jobs, their abilities to get into school, their abilities to, you know, to be a productive member of our society. Having heard from the school, I want to make that part of the program so we're encouraging our kids to be wise in the choices they make and realize that although they are children, some of their choices have adult impact. You had alluded to earlier another chapter in your life working with the juvenile drug courts mm-hmm. and that sort of – is that part of this overall scheme of trying to help kids not permanently mar their lives? Yes. I mean I think that that juvenile drug court experience was helpful. So Howard County has some problem-solving courts and we're examining expanding those. We're looking at – this is all potential. So we have, sure, we're not sure. here yet. But we're examining the potential for a veterans court. We're examining the potential for a full-on drug court. Uh, we're examining a uh, mental health court. So we're examining several different avenues, working with the Howard County court system, public defender's office, all the stakeholders coming together to try to address you know, issues that impact us here. And those problem-solving courts are going to be 
first we have to substantiate them. So you have to be able to show numerically how many, let's take mental health, for example. Sure, sure. How many, what proportion of our cases is mental illness attributing to? And is the appropriate response for this particular behavior incarceration or something else? And how do we mandate that something else? And how do you compile the statistical data to support things in the first place? Because I suspect, I mean, you know, you read in, with people who are incarcerated, the prevalence of mental health issues and drug addiction issues is just phenomenally high. That's absolutely true, Bob. And, and the other piece of it is, where do you define the lines? So mental health can be, not to call things minor or major, sure. but it, it can be on one end, simply any, so, any social behavior that's pathologically antisocial. Or it can be any social behavior that just, I don't like to follow instructions and I resist authority of any kind. That's just only my makeup. And now I'm doing something that's showing that in a way that's criminal. Got right? it. There's playing that in a way that's criminal. Or it could be, I have a psychological defect that does not allow me to comport my behavior to the standards of the law. And I am now engaging in criminal acts that are outside my own control. And so there, there's a gradient or um, continuum? a range, yeah. continuum, right, that has to be examined on... How do we align and how do we, I guess, put people into categories to make sure that their treatment is appropriate for their particular circumstances? You don't want to put people in prison who are not able to control their behavior at all because they're not on the right medications or that kind of thing. Right. And I think that you need to – there needs to be a, a deterrent effect or punishment for crimes. But we also need to understand that we need to take our victim, our, our defendants, rather, the, where they are and, and where they are in the, in the spectrum of their mental health. I think that going to the point you just made, that we have to allow people the ability to reform. And if we're not addressing what's caused the criminal behavior in the first place, they can't reform. You know, maybe it is a matter of just getting drugs. Or maybe you need to do some thinking about who you are and how you conduct yourself and what your values are. What your support system is in life. Right. And so all those things need to be, you know, assessed so that we can make the incarceration process a deterrent, but also a reformative process. We had a guest on a few weeks ago, a lawyer from the Making a Murderer program, Jerry Buting, who's a good mm -hmm. friend of mine. And he was talking about in Philly, they have a new district attorney mm -hmm. who's trying to combat mass incarceration. And I recognize that's not quite the issue here in Howard County, but right. you know, over-incarceration in the country as a whole is astronomically expensive and I think is potentially destructive to communities. And I would presume that some of those things are, are you're facing as well. Yes. I mean, I, I want to make sure that if we approach this the right way, holistically, right, and we're, we're trying to reach out to our kids the, you know, before they commit crime, reach out to people and encourage them to do the right things, educating them too. Um, so I went and spoke to a school last month. It was at Oakland Mills. Sure. And um, I spoke with a class there, and they're reading a book about a person who committed a crime and is going through the criminal system. And I spoke to them, and what I, I tried to explain to them accomplice liability, right? The idea that, you know, who you hang out with can impact your circumstances. Felony murder rule. Yes. <clears throat> and so, you know, if I use the analogy of a bank robbery, you know, classic, you know, person's getaway driver is responsible for all the activities that occur in the bank, even though they never set foot in the bank, because they are associated with this individual and help to make this crime occur. And so if during the course of that bank robbery, if you, even if you don't went in there with no guns, but the security guard happens to be an elderly person and you startle them and they have a heart attack, the guy who's sitting in the car just committed murder, right? And that's the way our law works because we don't want anyone engaging these kind of activities in the first place. And so who you associate with and your choice in association is going to have an impact on your life. So if your friends are doing something that's wrong, you know, break off. Do the kids or the schools give you feedback on the relative success of this stuff? 
So there wasn't any, this was impromptu. I was there uh, to judge uh, a contest that was going on for Black History Month. Okay. And the teacher invited me in the classroom and told me about the book they were reading. And then I just was like, hey, do you mind if I talk to the kids? And she was like, no. And so I went and I spoke with the kids about this issue and the law as it relates to them, hoping that by educating them to the rules, if you don't know the rules, you're, you're going you're gonna to break the rules, right? But if you have a clear understanding of the rules, if I, or at least you've been told what the rules are. I don't know how clear their understanding is, but I tried to make it clear. But if they're told what the rules are and it's in the back of their mind somewhere, maybe when their friend gets in the car with a gun, they get out, right? Maybe when one of their friends says, All right, well, let's go steal something from the store, they say, no, you know, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to go the other way. And I've just reduced crime. You can't measure a, a negative, but my goal would be for my employees to have as little to do as possible because we're reducing the criminal activities that are going on, and that means addressing it on the in the front with our youth, and on the back end with reentry, right? Working to make sure that people, when they come out of of jail, don't end up in a cycle where they're going right back in. Thought it was extraordinary this election cycle that in Florida, where the Republican candidates seemed to win the most significant offices, that felony voting rights were restored with an astonishing, you know, victory mm-hmm. overall because it just didn't seem like the kind of place that was going to happen. I mean, Florida is a, a interesting place generally. So it, it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> But I guess I feel like that's part of, you know, being part of the community and, and getting some of your dignity back, hmm. that if you can have a say in elections, that's a really important thing. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, I was saying kind of before, I think that um, we aren't summed up by our biggest error. We're not, we are not our worst moment, nor are we our best moment. But I believe as a prosecutor that we have to allow for reformation and rehabilitation and, and like the ability to grow from our errors if I didn't believe that, the answer would just be incarcerate everybody and lock them up and they're all bad. And I just, I don't, that, doesn't, that philosophy doesn't resonate with me. Sure. Right. I believe that we should punish people when they do something wrong, which should hold them accountable, but we should also, in holding them accountable, allow a path for growth, positive growth. People being incarcerated also has a huge impact on their children and their parents and their families. And mm-hmm. so it isn't just we're going to punish somebody because they did something wrong. And it, I feel like there needs to be some level of community support for the people who get left behind who aren't incarcerated as well. Yep. There's a program that we're trying to work on partnering with called Vehicles for Change. Okay. What they do is they take donated vehicles and they train recently released people re-entering society from, sure. from incarceration. And they train them on how to work on those, to upkeep those vehicles and maintain those vehicles. They learn the mechanical skills. And they pay them while they're training them, a modest fee, but they pay them while they're training them. Once they get their certificates and they, they're actually a craftsman, right, and they have the skill in, in mechanics or whatever it is they're working with with the vehicle, they then can now be employed in, in society. Those cars they fix, they sell at a reduced rate to other inmates that are recently getting out that need a vehicle to get around our community because Howard County very cool not very yes yeah, so it's like almost like recycling applied to you know cars and it's addressing an important issue as it relates to you know our, our community's not very convenient to get around if you don't have a vehicle and if you are recently out of prison you already have that against you but your ability to get to work on a regu- in a in a way that's you know, consistent is critical in order for you to get on your, on your own feet. Sure. And so it's kind of, we're training people, we're giving them skills so they can get jobs, they can be employable, so they don't have to, they have a choice. If you commit a crime after you have a valuable skill, that's on you. 
but we're giving you a means to like live a, a law-abiding life. And then we're, we're also taking those individuals that are getting out, they need a, the ability to get to work that they've obtained, the ability to get to work. Um, so it's a, it's a win-win. So we're looking to partner with them. Um, I have a meeting with them on the 25th of this month. I'd like to digress for one second. You were talking about the existence of special courts for veterans mm-hmm. and for mental health issues and that sort of thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. I presume that that's being done elsewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And do you know about any successful pro- programs with that and, and sure. where they are and how they work and that sort of thing? Sure. It sounds like a great idea. To they're me. all around us. So yeah. Howard County, um, you know, we're growing. And so we, we have to assess we have to assess the demand because let me back up. Sure. So in order to do a, a problem solving court, veterans court, mental health court, drug court, any of those kind of courts, sure. um, you're taking the a judge out of play and, and, it, and you're putting him in this this role. Those roles, having having run it for the attorney's office in Prince George's County, they're very intensive time wise. You're you're screening your people that you're bringing into the, to the to like I, I did drug court. You're screening people you bring into drug court. Right. You're working with, mine was juvenile, so we're working with Department of Juvenile Services, Public Defender's Office, the judge, um, all the different community stakeholders meet in a room. We evaluate each kid, we evaluate each kid's progress, and we're bringing them in regularly. So, so it's, a more, it's a more demanding process, but it, it has been shown to lead to better results across the nation. They have it in Prince George's County, they have it in Baltimore City, they have it in Baltimore County, et cetera. We, need, we, we have to determine what our numbers are here you know, we have five district court judges and five circuit court judges. We have to make sure that we have the numbers to justify pulling one of those judges off of their general rotation, right, and and having them address this problem-solving court. And what does that do to the other judges who have to carry their – have to rebalance the caseload? So it's, it's a matter of, of distributing the workload in a way that's fair to the courts, and that's justified by our actual numbers. So right now we're in a number – we're in a measuring – stage right to determine how many veterans do we have coming into our system what are their needs where are they offending and how do we address them that kind of thing i would think with the population expanding like mad in howard county that we're doing allotment of at least another circuit and district court judge anyway yeah i think so so we're moving to a new courthouse uh, if everything knock on wood if everything goes to plan um and and right now you know, and I learned this upon being elected. We have a space problem. Big like, space problem. So we have a space problem in the courthouse. We have a space program in my office. You know, we just don't have we don't have um, room to grow, and we actually don't have we we are not um, adequately spaced out right now. So we've got people you know doubling up, and sure. office spaces are, are congested, and it's not it's not what it should be. Um, not not far from ideal. The new courthouse will provide greater safety which is an issue but i'm not gonna go into that because that shouldn't necessarily be blasted publicly of course but safety issues um it'll address communication issues it'll address logistics internally and it will provide the space for us to operate optimally um with more space there there, there will there will be a space for the courts to grow as well um you know howard county now is three hundred thousand and change people right um and and we're a community that's growing and so it makes sense that that once the de- once the demand on the judges has a certain threshold, they're going to need more judges. Well, Prince George's County, maybe nine fifty a million people, and they have multiple times as many judges. Yes, yes. And I mean, I recognize that it's a busy place in some respects relative to Howard County, but still, it hardly seems it's the quite the right ratio. You know, I would agree. I mean, if you look at so Baltimore City, for instance, has six hundred thousand people, double our size, right? But they've got thirty something judges, oh, yeah. thirty two, thirty five judges, and again, they're 
to your point, the crime problem is very different in the city than it is in Howard County in terms of the volume. But um, but but yes, I think that there is room for the judges to grow, and that would better address. So the when is the needs. new courthouse thought to be available? So uh, according to the latest information that I've heard, we're looking to break ground um, uh, this this summer, and the plan is for it to be completed by 2021. Okay, right. That's the hope, um, and and I certainly hope that happens. I've been to mock-ups of the court spaces um, and seen what what the layout's going to look at, and actually offered had the opportunity to offer feedback on tweaks and changes they should make to that space so that it's more um, useful and and you know for a given purpose. The, the way the courthouse is designed right now, there are courtrooms that are poorly designed for the purpose of trying cases. Um, juries which, are which seems you. ridiculous. It's, it just, yeah. it's just really poorly set up. So this is going to be something that's going to be a marked improvement in terms of the setup, um, safety, and, and just utility of the actual space. So there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about, but I can see that we're nearing our end, and I did want to address one of the things, and mm-hmm. the extraordinary election results of your election, where we have an African-American county executive, sheriff, and state's attorney. And obviously, that's an extraordinary turn of events here in Howard County. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about why this occur- is occurring. I mean, I, I think it's occurring because Howard County is a community that as a whole is willing to allow people opportunities to prove themselves worthy of these positions. I told an anecdotal story. I'll share it now. It's a great anecdote. Go um, ahead. My, my wife's a doctor and uh, the, a couple, I guess a month or so ago, I came home and my son asked me how, like what I do. I told daddy's a prosecutor. Um, and so I explained to him what prosecutors do and we're talking for a moment. He's four. And he says to me, um, I said to him, look, Nate, you could be anything you want. You can do anything you want to do. You can be uh, you own a business like Uncle So-and-so. You can be an engineer like your grandpa. And I went through a list of like different people in the family that are doing different things. And I said, you can be a doctor. And he stopped me. He says, no, Daddy, I can't be a doctor. My wife happened to be standing in the kitchen um, at the time. And I said, what do you mean you can't be a doctor? And he says, doctors are girls. And my wife looks at me and I look at her. And I realized that, you know, my wife is a doctor um, of internal medicine. Uh, my, my son's pediatrician happens to be female. His dentist is female. And so he has seen a world in which the doctors that he knows all look a certain way. And so to him, he had limited himself. I quickly corrected him and told him, no, you can be a doctor. Um, and in fact, he has a family member that's a doctor. I, but he didn't know, he didn't draw that connection. But the point is that having examples of diverse people in a wide array of positions shapes us both consciously and unconsciously. And my son is an example, I mean, it's anecdotal, but it's an example of, of seeing people in different spaces opens opportunities for other people. And so I hope that the next generation of young people, boys, girls. Howard Community College students. Howard Community College students uh, see, see diversity and don't think of it as limiting, you know, who and what they can actually do. Because I hope they feel they can do anything. The country has changed so dramatically during my lifetime, and I'm a good deal older than you, and that has been one of the most wonderful developments to see President Obama. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just 
touched me tremendously. And I, mean, I don't want to wear my heart on my sleeve, but I do feel like it's the sort of thing that tells people, it doesn't matter who you are, it's, it's meritocracy in this country. You know, you do your best. And, and we had a guest on recently who uh, was just appointed to the bench in Prince George's County, former employee of mine, Sharon Kelsey, whom yeah, I love Sharon. dearly. Yeah, yeah. And the theme Sharon has had and had on the radio program is you never know who's watching. And what she meant by that, and apparently she speaks to, has spoken to youth groups for years, Mm -hmm. is that she was working as a legal secretary for a good friend of mine while going to school at night, magna cum laude. Mm -hmm. uh, And I was knocked out by what she was doing. And I was hearing from my friend what a wonderful person and employee Mm -hmm. she was. And so when she went to Georgetown Law School, I was eager to hire her. And Mm -hmm. she never thought in a million years that what she did day to day in her life, in school, in work, uh, was going to have such a profound impact on her life. Mm -hmm. And it did. And Mm -hmm. I guess that's the message Mm -hmm. that you are giving to people and Sharon is giving to people. And many of the guests I try and have on the show give people. And that is... Do your best every single day and opportunities will present themselves and just grab them. Yep. I, I mean, I think that that is the, that is the key, that, that we create opportunities for people, that we look, we actively try to create opportunities for people. I think that's the, the other piece of it is that, that you know, um, some people just need to be nudged and they don't, they don't see their, they, you, you can miss your own potential. You can miss your own, Easy your, to. Your, own Easy um, to. Your, your own gifts to the world. And so- um, I think it's important for people in positions of power to look for opportunities to build up the next set of people so that they hear, oh, you, you can do this. And they think to themselves, well, maybe I can do this. And then they pursue it. And, and in turn, they benefit everyone in our community. You can be a doctor even though you're a man. Yes, yes, yes. Shocking, right? Well, I'd like son. to thank Rich Gibson for another <laughs> sterling appearance on Everyday Law. My, my, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. And I hope we'll have you back soon. There's a lot more we could be talking about. I think we could do hours worth of shows. <laughs> this is Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.